What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Uh, Welcome back everyone to Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the podcast of the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science. Today, we're eager to be chatting with some amazing women leading the Sunnyside Strong Collaboration in Houston. We're joined today by Felicia Jackson, who's the Family Support Services Manager at the Houston Area Urban League, Rachel Kimbrough, a sociologist at Rice University, and Kianta Moore, MDJD, a fellow in child health, uh, I'm sorry, a fellow in child health policy at the Baker Institute for Public Policy. So this team was recently awarded IAPHS's Community Research Partnership Award, which is given out annually as part of the IAPHS conference to recognize excellence and collaboration between community groups and population health researchers. Welcome everybody to the podcast and congrats again on your award. Thank you. Thank you and hello. Thanks for having us. Everybody with giving you virtual applauses. (laughs) (laughs) So just to start us off a little bit lighthearted, um, you know, 2020 was a really challenging year for so many, I'm sure yourselves included. How did it feel when you first learned about winning the award and receiving just the tiniest bit of joy amidst what I imagine was a really tough year, you know, was kind of the light at the end of the year for you all. How was that? So uh, it definitely was some light in 2020 for sure. Um, And it also felt like we were starting to wrap up the project when we heard um, that we'd won the award. And it had really been three full years, plus a little bit probably of Mm. hard work, um, lots of meetings, uh, lots of conferences and workshops because our, our project is part of a uh, Robert Wood Johnson funded program called Interdisciplinary Research Leaders. Okay. And part of the idea is that you actually receive training in um, community engaged research and um, all kinds of things like leadership and team building and collaboration and things like that. So we were doing the research, but we were also having all of these other awesome experiences at the same time. And it all fed into working on this project and building are really the really strong team of the three of us and then all of the people in the community that worked to help us draft the survey, um, helped us give us lots of good ideas, gave us advice and actually collected the data and all of that stuff. So it was a huge effort and winning the award was just a really nice kind of cap to put on the experience. And I felt like it really recognized not just the work of our team, but, but the work of everybody in Sunnyside that had pulled together to make this happen. So it was great. That's great. For sure. Absolutely. I concur. Um, the only thing I'll add to that is that, and I've been doing community-based participatory research for a while now. And, um, you know, it's nice to just have this type of work to be celebrated and to have an award for this, because it really does take a lot 
more time than your traditional mm -hmm. research, particularly if you're a researcher who does mostly secondary data analysis. <laughs> um, <laughs> like Rachel, yeah. Yeah, like all of us pointing <laughs> to ourselves, yep. <laughs> And so the fact that this award exists and the fact that we were given it, um, I concur with Rachel, it just really was nice after three very long years of doing work that we all really cared about, but also really was a lot of hard work. And, and I must say it was great to um, get the notification. I think on um, the side in terms of being the community partner, um, you know, to get that accolades and to be able to um, relay to um, our staff, ex especially executive management of all the work um, that was put in to do, to do this project, um, not only just the longevity in terms of the years, but just, um, just getting through uh, what we call our initial stages of getting this research project started. And so to be able to um, have that and share that with um, management in the company was actually really great, especially at the time that it uh, came uh, in, in April. So in this COVID. Oh, for sure. And they were really thrilled about that. Like the executives were like, oh, we got an academic award. Like this is, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> that, that's good so to know. Awesome. <laughs> um, Okay, well, let's let's get, dig a little bit more into like what y'all actually did. Um, you know, from reading up on it and like looking at all the kind of products that you put out, it's certainly a well-deserved award. I can say that. Um, so, can you tell our listeners a little bit more um, about kind of the work that you did with the Sunnyside Strong collaboration, um, particularly like uh, how the team came to be and how you kind of conceptualized the project? So um, this collaboration actually came about, I want to say initially um, with Kianta and I, we actually worked on another uh, project together um, and she had some familiarity of the work that the Urban League was actually doing in the Sunnyside community that also uh, kind of compelled or compared to uh, the work that she had already been doing um, and so um, there's just some discussion because, you know, both of the projects or the things that we were doing were about traditional, traditionally African-American communities here in Houston. So I want to say that Kianta was the glue that brought all three of us together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was currently doing research in a, in a neighboring a community to Sunnyside called Third Ward. And that was in partnership with a research institution located in the neighborhood called Sankofa. And the executive director of Sankofa and myself did a massive community needs assessment. And out of that, we found something really interesting around the importance of collective advocacy and social cohesion in mitigating the adverse impacts of what we usually think about are the social terms of health. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to investigate, our question was for the Sunnyside project is comparatively, you know, how does this neighborhood, which is really just a few miles from Third Ward, how does this neighborhood compare and what are the outcomes and how do we mobilize or how do we support community members and using data to action? Third Ward was already a community that was very um, civic driven. They already had a lot of infrastructure to be able to take the data from the research and advance policy. 
Sunnyside had less infrastructure, but we wanted to be able to leverage our grant dollars and our expertise and helping to support the creation and development of the infrastructure that will be needed to advance um, change in the neighborhood. So that's really how our team came to be. Rachel actually heard of the Robert Wood Johnson um, you know, funding opportunities. So, so she talked to me about it. And then, and then as Felicia said, I, I was the glue. Um, and I think that really worked nicely in all of us having very clear um, objectives and goals and coming together the way that we did made for a seamless uh, project collaboration. Wow, that's fantastic. Can I hear more about the RWJ funding? I, so it did it like kind of put you together and help you think how to work better as a team so the project could be more successful? Yes, so that's definitely one of the goals of the program. So it's kind of part traditional research grant, part um, researcher community member development. Mm. So, um, you know, basically we actually, you only, for the application, you only give a small kind of overview of the project you plan to do and then they bring you into the program once you're selected and they help help you develop the proposal. So okay. it's almost like they help develop it all along the way throughout the three years. And at the same time, you know, one of the first things um, we did as a team was kind of learn about each other and our, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And um, I think it can't won't mind if I tell one short story, which is you know, we learned very early on that um, I am conflict averse. <laughs> I, am, I am the opposite of direct when I talk to people and Kianta is the, like the exact opposite. And so, you know, she would be very direct and I would be like, oh my gosh. or like there would be a problem and I would not say anything because I was yeah. like, it's not a big deal. I just, you know, let it go. So, so one of the things that IRL was really great for was it got us talking about that and Kianta, you know, I think in fact, Kianta was the one who was like, Rachel, you have to be more direct. <laughs> and I was like, are you sure? Okay. <laughs> um, but so it actually was really useful because we were working on those team dynamics, like right at the beginning. And, you know, as just a, you know, traditional population health researcher, like this is training that, you know, I had never had right, um, right. how to work in teams and, and all of that. So, yeah, fantastic. So let's dig into it a little more. Um, because I think we all love hearing about these research community partnerships, but we know that they can be challenging. Uh, you know, Kianta mentioned that they're, they take a lot longer than, you know, if we just had data and are analyzing it and data. Um, you all talked about how you kind of had to negotiate roles and expectations. Um, so what were some of the challenges that your team experienced? What do you think was the secret sauce that made your collaboration work effectively? And, you know, Felicia, I'm really curious to hear, you know, from the community side, you all are so busy, like you're dealing with a million and one things. When you have researchers knocking at your door saying, hey, you want to do this other thing that may or may not, hopefully it'll benefit you, but like we're going to make data <laughs> and, you know, maybe you're going to see you won't see the immediate impact of what we're going to be doing. You know, how does that play out for you? So that's a million questions, but you know, how does the, how did you all learn to make this work is I guess the big question. So I think, you know, an, 
when uh, approached with this, I think um, on on the selfish side for me personally, I was really excited about um, the opportunity to be able to uh, do some things in research, um, just based on some things from my um, academic experience uh, and um, some things that I had thought I wanted to pursue uh, career-wise, but um, on the professional side in terms of work, it was, it was kind of, um, I was kind of a little apprehensive and leery, I think, because it was going to be a three-year project. Um, that meant that that was going to add on to my additional workload and being in the service industry that I'm, that I'm in, um, you know, we're always met, we always have deadlines, we're always trying to meet needs. And sometimes, you know, those needs may occur like right now, which means that a project like this is just something extra um, to do. Um, but I think uh, what I saw uh, on a long-term basis is the work that we actually were doing in the Sunnyside community. Um, I actually work and probably do 90% of my work um, with our education and youth development services in, in Sunnyside. So we've been working with the schools, uh, which are the, the parents, the educators and the students, um, our primary audience. And so I just saw um, what we were doing um, in, that, in the community in terms of the Urban League's work and this research could really kind of elevate um, not only things that the Urban League wanted to do in terms of advocacy uh, for individuals in the community um, to help make that community better, but then also um, have us be the center in actually making that happen. Fantastic. I would also just add that um, to Rachel's point about uh, how different we, we all are. I actually think that part of what this our secret sauce was, was respecting each other's difference. And so I, you know, even though I would very gently try to encourage Rachel to be more direct, I also, Rachel also encouraged me to be less direct, to, to be gentler, <laughs> to be softer, right? So, so we, we were able to learn and Felicia, Felicia is very even keeled. And so she was sort of the nice balance between the two of us and that she was very even keeled. And so I think we were able to work because one, we, we actually respected each other. And I think that um, what I hear from the communities that I work with and other community organizations, although Felicia has never said this to me um, herself, is that often researchers come in with a very, with a mindset of, I know, I have the resources, I have the information, I have the education, and you just need to roll with me. Mm-hmm. And that's not how we approach this. We all were respectful of one another's opinions. We were all respectful of each other's strengths. And we were also respective, you know, respectful of each other's weaknesses. So that if, like, as an example, I am technologically very challenged and so my team members knew that and so when there was something that required some technical skill they would step in and say hey Kianta we're happy to do the first pass to build this infrastructure to put this together and then you could just look at it similarly if there's things that I'm you know, strong in, I'm strong in policy, and I'm also strong in writing. So, you know, so there were just, we recognized that um, we're all different, and we respected that difference. And I think where other 
groups have not been as successful is because they expected everyone to change to meet that one person's personality or need. (laughs) And we did not do that. Sure. And it's kind of amazing how, you know, that's like simple on the face. I know that it was like a lot of work to, you know, like kind of work through each other's differences and understand it but that people have such a hard time, uh, academics in particular, well, we'll own this, um, like just actually coming to the table in a way uh, that's kind of like equitable and kind of respecting that we're like, not like the end all be all experts on everything. It's like that one bit holds back so many really kind of successful productive collaborations. And it's just, it's amazing that it's that simple. Yeah. Um, Oh, go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say, um, you know, this was an unusual collaboration from from my point of view as an academic, right? Because we're, uh, you know, collaborating with not just um, a community organization with the Houston Area Urban League, but also with a neighborhood in many senses. So, you know, some of the, you know, some of the things we're talking about in terms of team building and collaboration you know, might seem like they're only applicable in this type of research, but actually I don't think that's true. I think it, you know, really we learn some tools that we can bring to all of our collaborations, whether they're community-based or academic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really grateful for that because I, you know, I learned a lot about, t- you know, team building um, yeah. in particular. And I thought I might just pick up, I'm not the podcast host, but <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask Kianta to highlight something, which I think was a real hallmark of of our project and one of the reasons why it was successful. And that was the way that we invested our resources directly into the community. Do you want to talk, could you talk a little bit about that, Kianta? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Rachel, because I do think that was something very important. So one of our values of coming to the table, as Michael, um, you just mentioned, and being equitable as researchers is that often, um, and, and not unlike how this project was, often the resources go to the university or to the academic partner. And then the academic partner sometimes unilaterally decides how those funds are being distributed. Now, Robert Wood Johnson, I would say, um, really made sure that our community partner, that Felicia signed off on the budget and that funds were equitably distributed. But then there's another layer and that's how are those funds then brought to the community? And so the approach that we use and the value system that we use is that it's one thing to come to the community and say, hey, partner with us on this research project. It's another to say, I wanna share my power with you. And power often is related to resources, (laughs) okay? And so we really came in humility and we came in a desire to learn as well as a desire for our research to really serve the needs of of this neighborhood. And in, in doing so, we wanted to make sure that everyone felt that they were on equal footing and equal partners in the work. And so we shared about almost over half of our grant dollars in the neighborhood. We paid, we trained community researchers in research methods and survey administration. We paid them a living wage. We gave um, very nice incentives for survey participants. We purchased and supported the local businesses in the community. We made sure that everything that we did really helped to 
um, support the economy in this neighborhood. Sure. And so that I think really demonstrated also to the community that we weren't there to just meet our own needs, but that we really came in authenticity to serve the needs of the community. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And again, it like, just like the coming to the collaborations with respect, it's, you know, like we sit and we listen to you, like kind of describe the strategy of like actually compensating people for like their participation, both in terms of like upfront resources, but then also being really clear about like how it's going to help them later and how just, again, straight, like conceptually straightforward things like that are really, really effective yet like you kind of see maybe less successful uh, kind of partnerships with the community that just don't implement those things, right? And it's just kind of amazing that that's not the first thought that folks have. Um, so super, super, super impressive stuff. Uh, kind of continuing on on the equity bit, um, one of the kind of common threads that we've been kind of turning over in a past podcast is um, kind of how interdisciplinary health researchers can help kind of inform uh, policies and practice that help move the needle forward on uh, health inequities, right? And so you've already hinted at some of it, but could you talk a little bit more about the ways in that your work has uh, kind of already created or changed or informed um, kind of uh, health improvements for the Sunnyside community? So, um... We uh, actually uh, involved and engaged um, different uh, community members as part of our community uh, advisory board. Um, each of them had their own special uh, interest or their focus of what they wanted to uh, focus on. So one was seniors, uh, one was children and youth. And so, um, you know, bringing these people with the varied interest um, um, helped to uh, them to actually kind of find out about each other, find out what they were working on and different things. And so since then, um, let, me, let me just say, first of all, uh, while we were working uh, on this project, um, two of the members of our CAB or our community advisory board um, were board members. And so their uh, nonprofit uh, organization uh, established its 501c3. And so one of the things I thought we could do is look at how um, through our research and the work uh, of the Urban League, we could actually partner with them to actually um, leverage um, their capacity, um, mainly in, in funding. So we looked uh, at different ways of where we can fund their initiatives um, that they were focusing in on. And one of them was in uh, environmental issues. And so they did actually receive uh, a grant to actually do um, some surveying and finding out what the needs are in terms of environmental health in the Sunnyside community. Um, we also have had one of the members of the community advisory board who is now part of a community collaborative that came about um, in terms of trying to address the issues in terms of youth development and youth issues in Sunnyside community. And so that group right now um, is looking at how they can collaborate. And then um, the other thing is the city of Houston or our mayor in the city of Houston came up with this initiative called uh, the Complete Communities. 
And so that's involving residents so that their neighborhoods could actually thrive and have the resources and the support that they need to address the issues in the community. And so several of our uh, community advisory board members are actually a part of that initiative to help bring in resources um, and change in the community. And so a lot of that has been a result of the work. And, and then I must say that they have been using um, the data or the report uh, as they uh, go out and they talk to people uh, in their different um, initiatives and the committees or et cetera that they're a part of. Yeah, that's pretty brilliant that yeah. <laughs> the project that is studying collective efficacy kind of created collective efficacy just by the nature of the work, right? Like you kind of, it rippled out. That's really great to hear. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, and I think that this, if, you know, for those who really care about action-oriented research, this is really the model for it. Mm -hmm. Because Rachel and I did, could not have had the bandwidth or the capacity to carry this work forward nor honestly should we have being people who don't live in the neighborhood are not familiar with all of the intricacies of um, the, the challenges as well as the strengths of the community. And so, but doing research in this way, we then were able to fund the creation of a community advisory board. We were then able to, to provide capacity building and training for the community advisory board. We were able to then teach them about data and in partnership with, um, with Rachel and the Kinder Institute, they were able to now have access to data visualization tools and software for their presentations. And so, you know, our impact of research goes beyond you know, whatever Rachel and I will decide to publish or write about this and really goes on to live well beyond the research or academic institution. And to me, I think that's the future of research mm. because, you know, we community members, people of color, disenfranchised groups are no longer just want to be human subjects. Right. They want to be co you know, partners in the work and help co-create the research questions and help to ensure that the questions actually solve something that's relevant to their lived experiences. Yeah. So, um, so this, I think, really is the way research should be done. And um, this community has done really an amazing job of being advocates for themselves. Yeah, that's great. It's a good lesson, right? Academics, yeah. like, build it, people will come. It reminds me a lot, at least I'm in Chicago of, there's all these data hackathons that happen, right? Where like community partners come with data and they wanna learn like, what can we do with this? How can we change this? How can we apply for a grant with this? And they learn the tools from data scientists, right? And then we like get out of the way so they can do what they need to do. So that's like, that's a really excellent, cool model. Um, so, you know, we're getting into um, 2021 and, uh, you know, you all talked about how your, you know, the bulk of this project was wrapping up, but I'm curious how your work has shifted in light of COVID and I'm sure the impact COVID is having on the Sunnyside community. Um, and then also what projects or uh, either research or community impact related projects do you hope to work on in the next phase of this collaboration? 
when are y'all gonna write the book on how yeah. this collaboration <laughs> for all of us? Alicia, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit about the COVID stuff that Kofi's been so, on. So um, we, we did, um, uh, two of us uh, actually received uh, funding to uh, address some of the issues uh, with COVID, uh, Kianta, uh, with a research project that she did, and uh, the Urban League actually received uh, some funding to address uh, food insecurity among senior adults, um, um, and that was really based upon uh, the demographics of the Sunnyside community. They do have a pretty high population of uh, senior adults uh, within their community, um, so um, we've actually um, have been providing them with gift cards so that they could, or $50 gift cards so they can actually go shopping, grocery shopping, um, and be able to. Um, it's been a great project because the seniors. Uh oh. Uh -oh. A bit of something messed Yeah, something went weird. So maybe go back. Uh, phrase of what you were saying there and let's and then I can just cut that whole section out so pick up wherever you think it would be consistent with what you were saying and I can mess with it to find it so can you hear me yeah mm -hmm. all right so um we did receive funding and we did provide uh seniors with a $50 gift card so they can actually go shopping um at their leisure um, so that they could make, so we could actually make sure that they have food. And at the same time, um, we have been trying to sign up uh, different uh, senior adults who are actually eligible for SNAP benefits. Um, so that's not only providing a short-term uh, solution to address food insecurity, but then to look at something on a more, on a more longer term. Um, and so um, we're actually looking as a result of that um, at the Urban League and trying to see what we can do to to address more of the needs of the seniors um, because COVID, not only just COVID, but our work that we've done before in terms of disaster, we found out that the seniors are typically the hardest uh, impacted um, and you know it's very challenging for them to access services. And then uh, Rachel and I also received some additional funds and separately. So I'll talk a little bit about my, my project and then Rachel can talk about hers. So um, after the murder of George Floyd, um, as you can imagine, I'm sure you saw on, on television, all of that. Well, you know, he was from Houston and Third Ward, the mm. communities that um, that I work in. And I so, yeah. yes, yeah. So um, I became concerned that with the increasing disparities of morbidity and mortality in African-Americans with COVID, that now being um, hit with this, you know, what some are calling a second pandemic, mm -hmm. I was I was concerned about how that might influence both the community, the collective advocacy, and those social cohesion factors. That really, um, what we found um, through you know uh, other research, really helped to mitigate the adverse health impacts. So, for instance, I, I published a paper. Um, we we all co-authored a paper in uh, behavioral medicine, looking at how uh, this collective advocacy was a protective factor mm -hmm. and people would exercise more. Uh, we'll be coming out with a paper showing a similar result for anxiety. 
And so now that COVID is requiring social isolation and distancing, I wanted to know and then enlighten with this additional um, challenge of George Floyd's murder. So we are, um, did qualitative interviews throughout the neighborhood of both Sunnyside and Third Ward to examine the impact and intersection of these two pandemics. And um, we're still analyzing the data, but some preliminary results have shown that, you know, even in despite of adversity, the communities are still coming together to um, address like, you know, checking on the elderly folks and making sure that they have their medicine and doing some of the same things that they did before. The only thing that is really, um, you know, coming a light is what's different in the pandemic is that people aren't hanging out as much. So right. people are still doing services for one another, but they're not like going inside, you know, maybe Aunt Joe's house anymore, right? They might leave her medication on the porch or um, they're not doing the social gatherings anymore. And so um, there is that social isolation from an individual perspective, but as a community collectively, neighbors are still helping other neighbors, which I thought um, is really just profound when we think about, you know, how much, you know, mental health prevalence have, have you know, increased during this time. I mean, there really is something that I think we can learn from these neighborhoods um, that have these very strong protective factors. And then the project I'm working on currently is um, also in Sunnyside, qualitative interviews with mothers of young children and we're primarily interested in food insecurity. Um, this is also funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but basically we got the grant, I think the week that everything shut down for COVID um, in March, 2020. And so we had to kind of rapidly regroup and figure out how we were gonna do things. So we're doing remote interviewing and, mm -hmm. and, and all of that, but we also had to kind of tweak what we were asking. And so we're really focused on how are low-income mothers managing food in the household when all of their children are home instead of at school? Right. Um, and it's been a real burden uh, on these households mm. um, because kids are just eating all day long <laughs> because they're home. <laughs> yes, Kianta's saying her kids do, my kids do. Um, but you know, in our households, we can manage that. Like we'll just go to the, you know, go to the store get groceries delivered, but um, in the households that we're talking to in Sunnyside, this is a really big deal. And I will say that the, you know, community centers, the churches, um, the school district in Houston have, you know, really tried to mitigate this with, um, you know, food drives and, uh, you know, enhanced enhancements from the food bank, enhancements to SNAP and things like that. So there are definitely some, you know, positive things that have been happening, but the women that we interview are still just, you know, having a really hard time um, with food in particular. And it's interesting that you bring up mental health, Kianta, because we're about to go into the field for like the second phase, the second round of, of interviews. And mental health is something we're going to be talking to them a lot more about because it was definitely coming up as a possible yeah, yeah. factor in our interviews. Um, but all of this work, I think the, the work Kianta is doing, Felicia and, and me, it's all informed by all of the community building we did, you know, the initial project that we did, it's informing all of this additional work that we're all doing. Um, so it was, it was really valuable for lots yeah. of reasons. Yeah, the ripple effects from like this one project. And I'm eager to see kind of what y'all three work on in the future and what will come of this. Um, 
So we're almost on time, but I guess a fun question. Uh, I've only spent a little bit of time in Houston. What do you all like? Give your Houston shout out. What is unique about Houston and what do you most enjoy about working um, in Third Ward, Sunnyside? You know, what is, you know, for the, for our listeners, haven't been to Houston because everybody talks about, you know, New York, LA, San Diego, I mean, San Francisco, but Houston is a big city that I think people miss uh, a lot. So what is your Houston shout out? I'll it's go gotta, first. Yeah, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Rachel. I was going to say, it's got to be the food. Okay. Like, like I know Chicago thinks they have good food. New York thinks they have good food. <laughs> LA, whatever. No, incorrect. incorrect. <laughs> it's the, the, just, we have every possible cuisine you can imagine and it's all fabulous. And so not being able to eat in restaurants right now has been very mm. hard, but we're doing a lot of takeout. Yeah. So that's my <laughs> I was gonna say, as the person who is from the East Coast who moved to Texas, um, one of the most notable things about Houston is how friendly people are. Okay. It's actually quite odd for such a large city <laughs> that people are just so like, <laughs> people strangers you know if any new yorkers are listening to this you will you will totally understand what i'm talking about but strangers <laughs> actually wave and say hi to you and they're not trying to like do anything bad to yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're sincerely just wanting to be friendly and so that was actually a huge adjustment for me moving down here is realizing um that you know you could be friendly to strangers for no apparent reason whatsoever um <laughs> who knew and, and i was going to echo what uh Kianta said i was just going to say friendliness too but as a native houstonian um with uh family members who have roots in texas i wanted to say we're like a big country city so mm -hmm. people here are very very friendly very amicable um, and so it makes it really pleasant that you can actually just go and talk to your neighbors and say hi and even strangers on the street. You know, I, I was bike riding yesterday and um, I got so many waves as I was approaching people. And so um, I'm, even though I did live in California for a short beard, period of time uh, growing up, I didn't see that friendliness in California and was glad to get back to Texas. <laughs> So maybe enough. Houston, maybe Houston is a secret sauce. Maybe. Yeah, 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 exactly, right, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. Um, is there any last words or words of wisdom or insights that you want to leave our listeners um, who are perhaps thinking about going the more community engaged route? I would say dive in, don't be afraid, but know that there are best practices out there and there are people who are experts in doing this type of research. And I could never have done this on my own without Kianta and Felicia. And I don't think you should try to do it on your own. So <laughs> it really is a group effort and academics need to have humility in these projects and understand what they do not know, which to yeah. me was apparent very quickly. <laughs> and I learned, I learned more doing this project than I did in the first 15 years of my career. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not wow. like for real. Yeah. Um, sure. I learned a ton. So that's what I would say. I don't know, Kianta, do you want to 
chime in? Yeah, I actually was going to say humility. So you got it right on, on point. I think you have to enter communities from the perspective that, yeah, you have some experience, but um, the community has something that, that is almost richer than yours, which is their lived experience. And so um, coming into communities with, you know, with humility, I think is the best way to approach this work. And I was grateful for the opportunity to work with Rachel and work with Felicia. It really was, um, you know, the best three years. It really was. And so I just, I thank both of you um, for just being, you know, my partner and, and now my friend in this work. I'm just going to say from the community side, you know, don't be so leery of um, those academicians that want to come into your community uh, and try to help you make change. Because I, I think one of the things that I've learned, and I've learned something different, um, I think, in terms of research and how this can actually work with um, researchers working together with the community to make change. And so, you know, researchers are not necessarily coming in there to get um, information or do research that would um, help, you know, with their research projects or their career, but they're really sincerely coming in to try to do some things to help make change in the community. Yeah. And we don't always do it great, but we really are trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're honestly trying our best, yeah. We're trying our best, yeah. All right, well, uh, I think that puts us at about time. So thanks again to y'all for taking uh, time out of your very busy days, I'm sure, to chat with us. Uh, we'll definitely keep an eye out for uh, work that you and the team continue to do in the future. Um, and to learn more about the Sunnyside Strong Collaboration, well, actually, do you all want to plug it where folks can learn a little bit more about uh, what the research team is doing? Well, the Sunnyside Report is on the Baker Institute webpage. So you can um, just Google my name on the webpage and, and be able to, to see the report. And then, Rachel, if you want to talk to them about how to access it on the Kinder Institute website. Yes, so the Kinder Institute for Urban Research at Rice has uh, an urban data repository um, where our Sunnyside data now lives. And not only can um, researchers apply to access that data, but also um, community members can ask for specific analyses to be done um, by the team at the Kinder Institute. So it's a really great uh, community resource and it's worth checking out, but you can find it at the Kinder Institute's website. Great. And we'll be sure to hyperlink all of those um, in our podcast description. Uh, thank you again and uh, have a great one. See y'all in the all next right. episode.